0: The second week, which will be our Lenten series, getting a jump on Lent. And today we'll be looking at the end of chapter one and chapter two. Um, Before I start, one of the. Ecclesiastes is a very complicated book, and it's actually, I found it a very difficult book to preach and pull together. Um, one of the complicated things has to do with the authorship of the book, which I'll talk about later. Um, the, the phrase um, in the translation that we're using the preacher is the word koheleth, which is uh, Hebrew for uh, the ga- he is a convener, a gatherer. And I, I just called him Q last week, but that was really disturbing for a number of people, uh, in part because of their thinking QAnon. And so that's not an association I want you to have to struggle with. Um, uh, <laughs> Rather than lead us into unreality, uh, the cue of this book leads us to what is really real. So, I'm just gonna call him the teacher, okay? Um, We'll just call him the teacher. Uh, But our our scripture text this morning comes from, um, yeah, I already said, chapter one and chapter two. Hear the word of the Lord to us this morning. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I plied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guided me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools, from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered myself to, for myself silver and gold, and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart had found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun." What has man from all his toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a man or a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. The word of the Lord. Father, we ask that you would um, give us wisdom and understanding to understand our own hearts and how you've created us, to understand the vanity of existence, and what that teaches us about the spiritual life and our relationship with you. Lord, wherever we find ourselves in in the vanity of life and the the hevel of existence, uh, may we turn to you and to see you in your presence, which is enduring and lasting, the only thing that is enduring and lasting in our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen. This Christmas, we watched Frank Capra's film It's a Wonderful Life. It's one of my favorites, next to Elf. (laughs) (coughs) Although that movie has a happy ending, overall it's a a pretty dark film. It opens with um, all these prayers you hear uh, to God for mercy on behalf of a man um, named George Bailey. They're prayers from friends and family. George Bailey is played by Jimmy Stewart. And God responds to those prayers by summoning uh, an angel named Clarence, who hasn't gotten his wings yet, to go down and to help George. And what you learn, as you learn George's story, is that uh, his family savings and loans company uh, is in a terrible financial bind that threatens not only him um, and his family, but actually the whole town. And in despair, the whole town of Bedford Falls, in despair George contemplates uh, suicide, thinking that his, that if he kills himself, his insurance will pay out enough money to save everybody and save the town. So on the one hand, George's thought of suicide, they they reflect his misguided heroism. But on the other hand, his thought of suicide reflects the reality that he is a man who for many, many years has lived in despair, and uh, this would probably be an appropriate ending to his life. George is a man who's been hard-bitten by life. He's always seemed to get the short end of the stick. Um, From the time that he was a young man, things just haven't turned out. So there's a lot of resonance between the story of George Bailey and and the hardness of life and the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, But George has embraced in his life a lot of questionable and problematic assumptions that the teacher in Ecclesiastes wants us to re-examine. One of them, the first one, is that doing the right thing will mean that you'll be rewarded in life, that doing the right thing means you'll have success and things will turn out, but obviously this doesn't happen. It seems like the more that George does the right thing, the more he suffers, and because of this, He's, he's a pretty cynical and joyless man. One of the other assumptions that George makes is that, um, that his life, if it were to have true significance and importance, um, it's gonna happen somewhere other than Bedford Falls, a little tiny Bedford Falls, right? Uh, there's, a, there's a scene in the movie when he's talking to his father about taking over the family business. He doesn't want to do it. He wants to go off to college and travel the world. And he says, Pop, I couldn't face being cooped up for the rest of my life in this shabby little office. I want to do something big, something important. But of course, it doesn't turn out for George. For various reasons, he has to stay behind and take over the business. And this leaves him rather dejected. He's been tied down his whole life in Bedford Falls. This, despite the fact that he has a beautiful wife, and children, and a big house, is a pillar of the community in which he's loved. George's third assumption, problematic assumption, that he makes is that if only he could have had that opportunity, he could have found that significance and importance in life, he would have been satisfied. He would have been happy. He wouldn't have been restless. Now, I I think that we're all like George in one way or another. We believe that doing the right thing and working hard will pay off. It will reward us. We believe that finding importance and significance in life will generally requires us to move away from the current circumstances that you know, we're at in our life. That if we could just achieve the dream for our significance and importance in life that we'll be happy, we'll be satisfied. See, all of these assumptions about the world um, are ones that the teacher wants us to re-examine very carefully. More, More to the point, these are a kind of a, it's a reality bubble that the teacher wants to burst. The truth of the matter is that rarely does life turn out as we expect it. The words, I think, that haunt this whole text, this whole chapter here, is when he says, the teacher says, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man. It is unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Now remember what I said last week about uh, the deconstructive wisdom of the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a book of wisdom for living in a world that doesn't make sense. It's for living in a world that doesn't work the way it's supposed to be. And part of the point of Ecclesiastes is to tell us like the world doesn't have the moral coherence that you think it does and that you live according to. There's a glitch in the system. You can think of it that way. There's a glitch in the system. That's what it wants us to know. And The word that, that the, the teacher uses again and again and again, I think it's about 40 times, is, is the Hebrew word hevel. Vanity is how they're translated. Or, uh, literally, it has this imagery of smoke or vapor or mist. It's like smoke is something, but you try to grab hold of it, and you, you can't grab hold of it. Right? That's life. It's fleeting. It's absurd. We expect life to be straight, but instead it's crooked. We think that all the numbers should add up, but they don't. And you can do the math again and again and again. You can crunch the numbers a hundred different ways, but at the end of the day, it's not gonna add up. There's gonna be a deficit. It can't be counted. This is what the teacher calls the unhappy, or it's really the Hebrew word is for evil, the evil business of life which God has laid upon the human race. So what's the value? What's the value of knowing about this, knowing this about life? Is it to make us all pessimists? No, it is not. I think it's this. The assumptions and the expectations that we bring to life greatly impact our experience of it, our ability to enjoy it. See, when our assumptions of reality don't correspond to reality as it actually is, we easily become like George Bailey. We become joyless, bitter, Fragile and despairing. The goal of the teacher in naming Hevel as behind all of existence is not to plunge us into despair about reality, but actually teach us what it means to live joyfully. I know this seems very ironic. I said this last week. This is a book about joy. And the secret to living joyfully is very simply, lower your expectations. Look at the end of the verse, Uh, this is in verse 24. Uh, There is nothing better than for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat and who can have enjoyment? See, this is a repeated frame about joy that we encounter throughout the book. See, when we bring false assumptions, unrealistic expectations to life, and we expect it to turn out in a certain way and it doesn't, what it does is it robs us of our joy, it robs us of our ability to be, uh, a, be enjoy life. And let me remind you of, of the quote from George Bernanos that, that uh, Anthony mentioned, and I think it's an important one to keep in front of us as we go through this whole book, which is, um, it's in, in order to be prepared to hope in what does not deceive, we must first lose hope in everything that does deceive. So that's really what this book is about, right? See, to access real joy in life, to live joyfully, we must let go of our illusory expectations about the world and what it's supposed to do and what it's supposed to give us. Now, but with that said, these assumptions, these expectations of life die hard within us. They are hardwired into our DNA for living. It is inevitable that we will want more from this world than the world can give us. All of our lives in one way or another, whether we are conscious of it or not, are lived out in a form, uh, I'll call it the quest. We're all on a quest. The quest is the heart's longing, the heart's search for something. For meaning, for significance, for purpose, for satisfaction, for happiness. Depending on who we are and what the culture and time is, it looks different. In the words of Bruce Springsteen, everybody's got a hungry heart, right? The heart is like an insatiable beast that longs for something that can't quite satisfy. It's got an itch that can't be scratched. It is restless. And of this quest, the teacher is trying to instruct us and teach us about how to think about it. And his refrain is, it's an unhappy business, this quest, this burden that God has laid upon the children of men to be busy with. The teacher himself has tried, take, undertaken this quest with vigor. He's tried to figure it out. He's tried to crack the code of life, to learn the secrets of living, He has applied his heart fully. You see that again and again as a refrain in this this chapter. He's like, I applied my heart, I applied my heart, all these different things. And what he wants to do is he wants to share the results with us of his experimental living. So um, that's really what this chapter in particular is about. And and here's where the the question of authorship or identity of the writer, the teacher, I think matters. Um, There's really... There's really two voices that are going on in this book for the most part. There's, there's the writer, there's the author, who's, and then there's the teacher, right? They're not the same, right? Uh, the, the author is the one who's pulled together the wisdom of the teacher, and he's presenting it to us, right? So you have different voices at different points, but it's the teacher speaking now, and who is this teacher? The teacher says, I've been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now King Solomon is never explicitly mentioned as the teacher, but very clearly, um, very clear the tradition of Solomon, the person, personality of Solomon is, is called before our attention, rightly so. You should have Solomon in mind as you read this. Right. Solomon was considered the wisest who ever lived. He amassed great wealth, worldwide fame, and celebrity, and power. Um, he indulged in many, many pleasures and built many great palaces and gardens. So we should have Solomon in mind with respect to chapter two. However. We should not think only of Solomon when we read this. And that's part of the the ambiguity of the authorship here. Um, We should actually think of the whole tradition of the kings of Israel. See, wisdom wisdom is closely associated in the ancient world with kingship. Uh, To rule the world, it meant you, you needed to have wisdom. And so wisdom traditions are often associated with kings. And I think the significance of recognizing that we're talking about more than Solomon, but actually the whole tradition of the kings is that this isn't just one hard-bitten king who at the end of his life looked back and thought, hmm, this just really wasn't all it was cracked up to be. In a way, what the teacher evokes for us is the whole tradition and experience of the kings. And you'll notice that if you read the chapter carefully, he keeps going back and saying, I surpass all who are before me in Israel, since in Jerusalem. Um, and if this is simply only Solomon, then it was just his father David, right? But there's you know, dozens of kings that come afterwards. But he wants us to know, the point is this, he wants us to know, like, I have superlative experience. I was richer, I was smarter, yeah, I was better looking. You know, like I had it all. You, I mean, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And so, what I think the, the, the writer, the teacher, is trying to do for this, he's speaking for the universal experience of kingship, which is this unique social place in the world, which provides opportunity and possibility for realizing all your dreams. So, so why does this matter? See, the kinds of claims that the teacher wants to make about the vanity of life all depend Um, on his experiment in living, right? See, if I were to tell you, you know, it's all vanity, and you would say, well, what have you accomplished in your life? And you're like, well, not too much. It's like, well, you don't know, right? And so that's the the authority of his his experience as a king, um, as a really special king is quite important, because nothing was, there were no external barriers that could keep him from realizing his dream, He could pursue every possible pleasure, every possible project. There was nothing that was held back from him. And so it's worth looking. He gives us a a rather long resume of his experiences and accomplishments. And so I I just wanna look at those briefly, of what different ways that he tried to accomplish this quest. The first one is his wisdom and learning. The whole book is framed as a, as a quest for wisdom. And what we learn is that the teacher is more accomplished in learning and wisdom than any who came before him. He's, he says, this is verse 16, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were, who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And yet the conclusion he comes to is, is rather grim. I perceive, though, that this wisdom and knowledge is a striving after the wind. For much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. He who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. The more you learn about the world, the more wise you become, the more sorrowful you become. So being smart, being accomplished academically, is not the secret to life. So then, he moves on to, um, in a very different direction, in the direction of pleasure and folly. So the teacher tries out pleasure. He's like a college student on spring break who embraces a kind of hedonistic, party-till-you-drop, carefree kind of attitude. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. He says, now come, I will test you With pleasure, enjoy yourself. He tries laughter, he tries folly, he tries drinking. I searched with my heart to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guided me with wisdom and how to lay hold of folly. But he quickly came to see again the emptiness of it all. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? So he tries wisdom and learning, and then he tries pleasure and folly. But then he tries what is the kind of mature, middle-aged, adult option, which is building and accomplishments, right? So he turns to, uh, to build things, to, to make things, to make the world a beautiful place. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards. For myself, I made gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools to which water and the forests uh, to water the forest that was growing. I mean, he's you know you just imagine him throwing himself into all these building projects, and he's got businesses, and you know he's just so busy uh, managing all these things. But again, the conclusion is the same: Hevel, Hevel, emptiness. Futility. He tries sex and money, getting rich. I bought female and male slaves, who were born, and some who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women and many concubines The delight of the sons of man. So here he is, he has more money than he knows what to do with. And he can sleep with as many beautiful women as he wants. And yet, like Mick Jagger, he can't get no satisfaction. Right? So then he turns to power and fame. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem He was a world-renowned man, a celebrity. He had incredible power and wealth. Nothing stood in his way. And yet his conclusion is, so I hated life. I hated life because of what is done under the sun was so grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after the wind. So it's hard to imagine... It's hard to imagine a more perfect resume that would lead to the fulfillment of the quest, that would satisfy our deepest hearts' desires, right? He had it all, wealth, power, fame, sex, recognition, influence, accomplishments, everything you could want out of life, right? And yet he still fills the emptiness of it all. See, few of us in life will ever come close to achieving um, anything of the greatness of the accomplishments of the teacher. And yet most of us are likely to spend our entire lives pursuing more modest-sized dreams that we believe that once we get them, we'll be satisfied. We won't be restless. And so most of our life will be lived with these dreams just out of reach. And so we'll just keep running and keep chasing and keep thinking that if only we can get them, we'll be satisfied. We'll be at rest. But the teacher says, this is folly and madness. Madness, insanity. We're more like a greyhound dog on a racetrack that runs around and around chasing a mechanical rabbit. If you were ever to catch that mechanical rabbit, clinch it between your teeth, you would shortly realize it is not a rabbit. (laughs) And you'd drop it to the ground and you'd still be hungry. I think that is the image that the teacher wants us to realize. So what's the takeaway? What's the point of all this? Again, I'll repeat what I said earlier. Part of the takeaway is to lower your expectations of life. Realize that life will not deliver what your heart desires of it. You can accomplish all of your wildest dreams and fantasies. And for a time, they will bring you pleasure and happiness, but eventually they will fade and there'll be something else you need because it's Hevel, it's, a, it's smoke, it's not lasting. And um, even you know, the perfect marriage and the perfect children and the house you want and the job you want, all these things that you, could, you can get them and they'll make you happy for a time, but then they sort of just disintegrate like smoke. And the best you can do is to find momentary joy. Momentary joy that is right in front of you. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or drink or find enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. See, the teacher is not saying give up on your work, He's not saying necessarily give up on your dreams, your ambitions, or don't work hard. Toil is good, work is good. But what he is saying is don't take yourself so seriously. I think we all need to hear that. (laughs) Don't take yourself so seriously. Don't try to squeeze ultimate meaning and significance out of the things of this world. See, the problem is when you buy into the mentality of the quest, What ends up happening often is we become like George Bailey, right? You can't actually enjoy the the things that are right in front of you because you're thinking about what you don't have. And so what you don't have keeps you from enjoying what you do have. That is part of the wisdom that the teacher wants us to see. We have to receive life as a gift from God to be enjoyed for what it is and not for what it's not. And only God can do this, really. Only God can help us enjoy life for what he gives. But when we are able to do this, when we're able to experience life as a gift from God, enjoy it for what it is, we do become more joyful people. So, now there is still, I think, a nagging question that remains. Well, there's probably a lot of nagging questions, but one in particular. Why has God placed upon us this burden? The burden of this unhappy business? Why create creatures whose desire and longing can't be met by anything in this world? It seems rather cruel for God to give us appetites but not give us the food that satisfies the appetite, right? But this ought to remind us that this world is broken. This world is not what it was meant to be, not the way it was supposed to mean. It's not because of a design flaw on God's part, that we experience the unhappy business of life. It's because of our sinfulness, which plunged creation into corruption, and as Paul says, futility, hevel. The bondage to futility. And yet, as creatures created in the image of God, we still carry around within us this primal memory of the perfection of Eden. In one way or another, we, uh, we are longing to get back to Eden. We're longing for the experience of Eden. And, and the reason I, you're probably wondering, what's the story with the sacred reading in the Genesis 2? See, there's, there's a very, um, there's a lot of connections and illusions between uh, Genesis 2 and the description of the garden and Ecclesiastes 2. You know, there's trees, there's fruit, there's pleasure, there's wisdom, there's work, there's toil, there's purpose, all these things. And, and you, you get the sense, what becomes very clear is what is the teacher, what was he trying to do in his quest? He was trying to recreate Eden. That's what he was trying to do. And he managed to get pretty far, but the best he could do was basically a Disney World version of Eden. A theme park version of Eden, which for maybe two or three days can be kind of fun, But after a while, you realize, like, it's not real. And you grow weary of it. You grow weary of it. I think it is the same for us in one way or another, whether we realize it or not. We're all, we're east of Eden, and we're trying to get back in the garden. But the secret to Eden, what made Eden Eden, we often miss. It's not the amenities of Eden, the perfections, the pleasures, the beauty of it all that made it so great what made Eden special was the unique presence of God that was there. Eden was a place where God and man dwelt together in intimacy. Before the fall, Eden was a holy of holies. The whole creation is a temple and the Garden of Eden is the holy of holies. God walked with the man and the woman in the cool of the day. We think that if we could recreate Eden in our own life, everything would turn out fine. We'd be happy, we'd be satisfied, but the reason we were expelled from Eden is the same reason we can't recreate Eden anywhere else in this world. We have lost the intimate presence of God in our lives and within the creation around us as we experience it. That is the curse. And what made Eden perfect is that we had the wholeness and the fullness of a good creation in the presence of God. But to lose the presence of God is actually to lose creation too. To not be able to relate to it rightly because we're alienated. (laughs) That spiritual alienation creates other alienation. The secret joy of Eden was God. It was God's very presence. As the psalmist says in Psalm 16, in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Our place and our role in creation was never meant to be a, in and of itself, an end in itself. Creation and our work was always meant to be a means for our enjoyment of God, our love of God, our interaction with God. It was never an end in itself. The deep satisfaction of the quest of which our hearts hunger is not found in recreating Eden anywhere. It is found in finding the intimate presence of God. And when you have that presence of God, you can actually find joy even in things that are broken and imperfect. As St. Augustine famously prayed at the beginning of his confessions, Lord, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. The teacher said he was a king in Jerusalem, and that he became great and surpassed all that came before him. But there was another king that came after him that he did not know of, which did surpass him. This king's wisdom was also a very unconventional wisdom, but this kingship, his kingship, was quite distinct from that of the teacher's. It was not one that was filled with power and wealth and pleasure and recognition and fanfare and uh, great feats of political and military might. Instead, it was filled with suffering, with betrayal, rejection, and ultimately with death on a cross, but it was a kingship that was filled with joy. In fact, it was a kingship motivated by joy because of the joy that was set before him he endured the cross. And at the end of his life, this king hung, as he hung dying on a cross, he did not utter the words, which would have been completely appropriate for the moment and the occasion, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. Instead, his last words before he died were this, it is finished. It is finished. I have accomplished my work and it will endure forever. My toil, has paid off, I have gained something. I have gained something. Through my death, I have achieved a surplus, an advantage, that accrues not just to myself, but to everyone who embraces me and my wisdom. See, the joy that was set before Jesus was the recovery of you and me. The recovery of the union that we lost when we were expelled from the garden The joy which drove his mission and his life and his toil was his love for us. And the joy at sharing presence with his people. This is the secret of Eden. This is the secret of life. This is the fulfillment of the quest. The food for which our hearts hunger is none other than God himself. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would fill our hungry hearts, uh, not with things that are hevel, that that vanish and leave us um, continually hungry and aching, but that you would fill them with the food of your love and your presence. As we all examine our lives and we try to get perspective, help us, Lord, to see the ways in which we have substituted the longing for you, um, things of this world for the longings for you, things that only you can satisfy. It is very subtle. It's very subtle how that happens, but it happens for all of us, Lord. And so we pray that you would free us from that. And you would also, Lord, I pray, give us joy. There are so many things to be unhappy about in our time, in this season, so many things that we're going without. And yet, if we were to step back and to be honest, there are so many things that we can find joy in. And But we know that joy is a gift from you. It's not just talking ourselves in or getting the right perspective. And so we do pray for your presence and the ability to enjoy our lives as you have given it to us in this season. We give you thanks. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen.